Welcome to the Farcast here at Shadron State College. I'm Daniel Binkert with my co-host Alex Helmbrecht. We're here with Tony Perlinski, an associate professor in the Rangeland Management Program, and I believe the second uh, Rangeland professor we've had on. So we've, we've got uh, we still got to get Teresa on. We're working on convincing her. But anyway, it's far more interesting than I am. We've got to get the bleep button ready. We're, we're going to have it. Going. It's going to be good. <laughs> well, Tony, thanks for joining us here. Appreciate having you on. I think this is our last one of uh, this particular series, and until we ramp it back up in the fall. So we'll get right into it. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Where'd you grow up, and where'd you go to school? I grew up in Western Nebraska. Um, family from Sioux County, and then I, I graduated from high school in Kimball County, so we're pretty local. Um, after high school, I came to Shadron State College, so started in 01, graduated in 05, uh, bachelor's degree in biology with environmental science background. Um, at one point, I wanted to be a medical doctor, but I decided, oddly enough, I didn't want to go to school that long. <laughs> um, but then towards the end of my career at Shadron, I, I discovered range. I didn't know you could get a degree in range until like my last semester and I found soil science as a, as a taught that a course that was being taught. And so I signed up and discovered this whole new world of range at the end of my college career at Shadron. So that kind of obligated me to uh, continue my education. And so I went to North Dakota State to study range. Um, while I was up there, I studied multi-species grazing and biological controls. So we um, ran sheep, we ran cows, we used a bunch of different insects to try and uh, limit the population of leafy spurge on rangelands. Really fun experiment, uh, taught me how to do research. It did not go any farther than that. It was just kind of a, it was a, a favor from my, one of my professors at Shadron, Ron Whedon. I don't know if you guys knew Dr. Whedon, mm -hmm. but yeah. um, his, his influence was profound on both my current teaching style, unfortunately, <laughs> for uh, that, that FCC bleep button. Um, uh, Dr. Whedon had a lot of influence on, on kind of my view of higher ed. And then uh, as a favor, one of his colleagues picked me up at North Dakota State for a master's degree. Um, got through that project and it's kind of there where it clicked that stuff that happens at Shadron is pretty cool. Yeah, you know, it's I true. Didn't, I didn't know, you know, I didn't recognize it as a student, kind of the, the value of faculty and, and all the influence and you know, impact they had. Mm -hmm. So then I figured, well, if I want to do this for a career, I have to have a PhD. So I said, well, I kind of like to fart around in the mountains and uh, ended up in Wyoming for a PhD, studying uh, near-surface hydrology, of all things, of ecological sites. Um, spent a long time there, uh, goofing off in the mountains, but also finishing a PhD. Uh, towards the end of that program, this job opened up and... Here I am back again, doing yeah. doing kind of what I wanted to do from from the jump. So, so you're still you're still relatively new to this field. You, you came into it as a senior in college, uh, and you said that that soil science class kind of you know lit that fire or created that initial spark. What what do you attribute that to? Have you always kind of been interested in soils and in, in rangeland and ecology? Um, yeah, my grandfather was a rancher in Sioux County, so that was kind of you know my introduction to, to ranching. I always thought maybe I wanted to be a cowboy when I grew up for a while. Uh, grandma put the kibosh on that pretty quick. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so I had a little bit of, of, of understanding of ranching, but I didn't, again, didn't think it was something I could study in college. You know? um, but I always kind of had that idea that I wanted to be outside. I've always loved the sciences from, a, from an early age. Love sciences, gravitated towards ecology. Um, and so, you know, 
like many high school students, I assumed that if that's what you wanted to study, then the biology program it was where I needed to be. And so I just never, you know, it's, it's one of those things that rangelands as a whole, or range science as a whole doesn't do a really good job reaching out to students like me. Mm-hmm. We're getting better, but, um, you know, to say, hey, there's this whole field of range management and range science that uh, gets you outside and it's very diverse and you get to play with all this cool stuff from soils to plants to animals and you light things on fire and not get in trouble. I mean, there's there's yeah, all kinds of fun, fun things that, that go with range. What so. can go wrong? Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so so you, you said you got your PhD at the University of Wyoming and you wound up here. So how long have you taught here and what are some of the classes you teach? Uh, this is the end of my 10th year at Shadron State teaching. Um, Congrats. Yeah. Um, there's a great picture of me. Um, receiving oh, that right. award. Yeah, you're hiding behind someone. In that. <laughs> oh, was that can, the one? Yeah. You can see my bald spot, and that's about it. <laughs> yeah. So that's pretty great. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I've taught pretty well everything in the world of range, except for the animal stuff. So from intro to ag seminar and our um, you know ag 100 class up through our capstone pr- uh, planning class. Principles of range, principles of soils, hydrology, veg manipulation, um, range and fire ecology, all kinds of stuff in between those two kind of bookends. Uh, in addition, then, I've also taught um, within the Essential Studies program. So I, at one point, was teaching a capstone course called Wilderness and Civilization. Um, we're, we're not offering that at the moment. And then I, one of my, my fun classes I get to teach is in the uh, Essential Studies as a Civic Engagement course called Talk Dirty to Me. Um, that's fun for, if for any reason, to have um, our retiring faculty members in range say it and watch them blush. Um, but in that, course. you know, we, in that class, we have a crash course in soil science. You know, not it's it's targeted at non-majors who don't have a background in soils and recognize and help to gain some appreciation. And then the second half of the semester, we go out and we do civic engagement with the CDC. So the little kids, we do engagement projects with the with the college. We're getting ready to. Hopefully get those wrapped up in the next week since the semester is coming to an end. Um, but then playing with soils along the way and, and seeing, you know, some of the stuff that people that neglect is the wrong word, but maybe are unaware of. Right. You know, because there's some really cool stuff that happens in the soil that it's just at a very small microscopic scale. So. And people don't typically see it. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think of that importance of that whole ecosystem. Um, so tell us about your involvement with the Society of Range Management. So I've been a member of SRM since I started at North Dakota State. So getting close to 20 years, first as a student, then as a, um, as a professional. Uh, I'm a strong believer that students, when they leave, they should have some skin in the game. They should be active in their professional society. Um, and so I kind of like to lead by example and maintain some some activity there. Uh, I've done the at the state section level. I've been all the way up and done the president's and president of the state section and, and that sort of thing. Um, brought the SRM meeting to campus a couple of years ago. Uh, did some kind of fun stuff there. Um, and then at the international level, I've worked through the advisory council, um, which is the the member advisory board that talks to the board of directors. Um, that was a fun experience. You know, get a little leadership training on the job, you know, sort of thing. And then also on program accreditation, so, um, which is a really cool committee where I get to go look at all the range programs that, that come up for accreditation and say, um, 
what are they doing and how are they, you know, what is the, the really high points of their program and, and how are they preparing range professionals? Um, and then that gets me to go visit their campus when, when I'm allowed to, to go on the accreditation visits and then bring all that back and say, you know, for example, Montana State's doing this really cool ranch practicum class. Maybe we could embrace something like that here yeah. or, you know, they're doing some really cool stuff with assessment. Maybe we could pull that back. Um, so that's, that's kind of been my professional involvement there. And then we've taken students, or I have taken students um, every year that I've been here. Uh, my very first year, um, I ended up taking students to Orlando for the SRM meeting. Um, I had been teaching for three months at that time. I didn't know the students. Um, I met them when we got off the plane. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, probably was, was a pretty rough introduction to traveling with students, that one. And then there's been all kinds of various and sundry adventures along the way with dragging students across the country. We've pulled 18-hour trips in the van and drove to St. George, Utah, and drove to Reno, and recently came back from Boise, Idaho. And so getting students out, seeing some stuff. I like to drive. Students probably don't, but I like to drive because then you get to see all these rangelands between oh, here yeah. and there. Mm -hmm. um, that the sometimes we're, they're not going to get that opportunity unless they go out and do it on their own. Right. So. Um, you know, and, and so then with this, with the student involvement, then we have students participate in the undergraduate range management exam, multiple choice, general knowledge test on range, uh, plant ID competition, um, extemporaneous speaking competition, a poster competition. They present their research there. Lots of really good opportunities for them to build their professional network, to gain some experience, um, in, in, within the field. And, and, and do some pretty fun stuff along the way. And have won some major awards, right? Um, I have won or been, I don't know, winning is probably the wrong word. Um, honored with. Honored, there you go. Yeah. Um, outstanding Young Professional Awards from the Society for Range Management. Um, outstanding Undergraduate Teaching Awards. Yeah, that's awesome. Them. Congrats. Um, that was back in 2020. It was, that was an a interesting meeting because it was right at the beginning of COVID. And uh, SRM is an international society, so we were pulling all these people from across the, the planet into, oh, <laughs> into Denver right when everyone's really starting to notice that, hey, this COVID stuff is something we should be worrying Maybe about. this is yeah. for real. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that was, that's, was, uh, that was a fun meeting. We had a, um, and then, you know, COVID locked everything down. We didn't get a meet as a society for a couple of years. Everything went online. Um, really made you kind of appreciate... Um, those face-to-face -face interactions with your yeah, with your absolutely. peers, and you know, I think for me, when going to things like the annual annual meeting with SRM, yeah, there's committee work and obligations and and things like that. But really, just seeing people that that work in the field that have the same passion that you do um, to talk about stuff that you're interested in is always fun. Yeah, so. it's kind of reinvigorating when you get those opportunities. Yeah. So, Tony, tell us what's the what's the value of earning a degree in rangeland management. Uh, I know that you have, and the other faculty in your department have a lot of students up there, and CSC is typically seen as one of the leaders in, in producing rangeland uh, management students. Uh, but what type of careers are your students going into, and then what value are they getting out of their degree? Uh, we'll start with value. So right now, um, the Forest Service, who hires range management professionals from our program, um, has a self-described hiring crisis. Hmm. Uh, popular press from the NRCS is, is, is indicating they'll hire anyone with a pulse if they have a range background. 
there are eight jobs for every one range major nationwide right now as a whole. And that, and so that's not just Shatter, and that's every range degree granting institution. Um, we cannot produce enough trained range management people to, to fill the need. Um, you know, we've been told for years and years and years that there's this, this retirement bubble happening. That may have been part of it. <clears throat> There's been some some changes at the admi in, in the administration that have really put a focus on conservation practices, and so I think there's some extra hiring that's coming from that. Um, all of that combines to make a, it it'd be a really good time to be a range major, um, because the jobs when you come out they're they're good paying jobs. You can, um, you know, if you want to stay close to home, there's probably a range job close to home. If you want to get out and see the world while you're 19 to 23 you can go all over the Western U.S. Hmm. Um, with a range degree right now. There will be an opening somewhere. Um, so that's, that's the big value. Is yeah. there, there are jobs waiting. You know, I'm, we're getting people hired into to agency work basically uninterviewed because they have the credentials. And where are they getting those? Well, they're getting them at CSC. Hmm. Um, you know, our, our course catalog is strategically designed to make students look really good when they apply for these jobs. Um, especially at the federal level, they have a the hiring series they have to abide by, which is the 454 series. All of our students come out. So we're producing 20, 30 graduates a year that can then walk into any range job because of their curriculum, which that's, is pretty cool. Yeah, that's yeah. great. What a, um, what, a, what a wonderful outcome. Yeah, can't, can't <laughs> complain about that. Um, uh, the other part of your question is for, was what now? What types of careers? Careers. Well, range management specialist is, is kind of the one that, that's hiring a lot right now. Um, you know, we, within our program, we have several degree options, so we're a comprehensive major like most of them. Um, we have ecology, rangeland wildlife, rangeland livestock, rangeland equine management, um, and then a fire option that's a, a two plus two. But regardless of their option, where students kind of get to pick their area of interest, their passion, you know, if it's, you know, you want to hunt and fish for a living like I may or may not have wanted to do in my younger days, they tend to gravitate towards wildlife. But in those very competitive fields like wildlife management, they have this core of range and a, a job waiting for them as, as range technicians, range uh, soils technicians, range management specialists um, within, within agency work. And then, you know, if they, they want to continue to, to pursue wildlife, there's always jobs with the Nebraska Game and Parks. Um, a lot of that comes down to who you know. So it's really important that we get our students out into the field working with these professionals. Um, and we have a really good placement with summer employment with our students within, within the Nebraska Game and Parks particularly. Get out, get your foot in the door, you know. So when your your resume comes across the desk, they they recognize that name. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, even s simple things like the the wildlife students when they work with deer check stations during deer season, you know, they get to interact with the professionals in the field. Um, from our livestock option, a lot of those are our ranch kids that come from a farm and ranch and really want to go back. Um, there's some there's a whole another avenue of generational transition and things like that within the the ranching sphere, uh, and if those jobs are actually hopefully going to be there for them, but they, they don't always work out. Um, but that's kind of what they want to do. And, and we do have the ability to get people hired as just ranch managers. Um, we've had some really successful students that 
came through the program, get hired on as ranch managers. They don't own the property, they don't own the cattle, but they manage the operation, everything from the monitoring to the to the day-to-day operations. Um, and, and those students have, have been, for the ones I keep up with, have, have turned out and been really happy with what they're doing, um, even if it's not owning their own place, you know. So Wonderful. Um, so the rangeland uh, complex we've got up on the hillside, that's one of our newest buildings on campus, even though it feels like it's been probably almost 10 years now. Um, but how has that new facility, and especially that living lab that goes with it, how has that affected what students are able to do here and how they're able to learn? Facilities, uh, The facility's been awesome. You know, we, we, it took a little bit of time to grow into it and see yeah. what we could do. Um, you know, like the, the lab space and stuff. We, we try and be as much hands-on as possible. So, for example, in, in my soils class, I'd much rather have students outside playing in the soil instead of doing lab work and stuff. So if the weather allows, we're going to be outside. So if we think about the living lab space and, and, and Sea Hill proper, yeah. um, students are going to dig holes all over that. They're going to look at those soils. They're going to do different lab experiments outside instead of in the lab. Um, we do similar stuff with my hydrology class. We um, get out and measure infiltration and things like that in the soils. Um, one of the fun things is with the Natural History Preserve on the, the west end of the campus and, and Briggs Ponds, we can go look at wetland soils. That's always one of my, my favorite labs. Um, it's not a real you know lab where we test things and, and create hypotheses but, hypotheses, but we can go out and just observe hydric soils and look at, at the influence of that water that's, that's there. Um, sometimes year-round, sometimes not, um, and see some really cool stuff down there. Um, we've looked at uh, some other, you know, kind of hands-on stuff on the, the outside sort of thing. In my vegetation manipulation class, we talk about sprayer calibration and herbicide application. Well, we just happen to have weeds on campus, and we have some really nasty ones um, that we can go out, and students can figure out the herbicide they're going to use. They can... Um, create their tank mixes, they can go out, they can safely apply those herbicides um, and demonstrate knowledge in that way. I've been trying for, well, I've been here 10 years, so I've probably been trying for nine and a half yeah. um, to light parts of campus on fire. Um, <laughs> That's suppose, a nice way to put it. <laughs> we, we all get a little twitchy remembering 2006, yeah. but I imagine, there, I imagine there's a good teaching element here. <laughs> um, you know, so when I first started, uh, my I was teaching habitat inventory, so we were going out and measuring plant uh, attributes and then trying to do statistics to, to compare plant communities. And my predecessor had been comparing burned and unburned areas but that from the 2006 fire. But by the time I started seven years later, we'd lost our treatment effect. Everything had kind of just homogenized a little okay. bit. And so then we had to go out and create some new disturbances. And um, so far, um, we, we have not got to, to do a lot of the, the fire stuff. Um, we've done some small burn box stuff, so about the size of this table, right. uh, pretty mundane. Um, but it still lets students play with drip torches. And I think that's awesome. I mean, if you guys want to come up, I'll show you how to pour fire. You know, um, I've, I've seen it done back when... <laughs> you uh, had me at fire. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was uh, back when Chuck Butterfield was here, and uh, I was able to go out and with, with them on one of those controlled burns. I think it was, you know, 20 miles east of town here. It, very cool seeing that drill. You know, you, I hadn't grown up around anything like that, mm -hmm. so I go, you can drip fire. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I remember you showed me a YouTube video of it one time. Like, wow, yeah. that's neat. Yeah, um, 
come on up. Um, <laughs> you know, we uh, we did have done since I've been here. We've went out uh, south of town. Oh, uh, past the golf course. There's a private landowner let us do some burns out there. Um, we did so we burned some stuff off for that with classes. It's a little bit easier outside of town than it is on campus. <laughs> um, I suppose that'd be true mm-hmm. for for some obvious reasons. But there's there's some paranoia that comes with fire still. That lingering. Yeah. Um, you know, fear from 2006, 2012. Uh, Nebraska has a pretty strong history of being scared of fire. It's changing. The culture's shifting. It, it's amazing thing happens at the Nebraska-Kansas line. Is it, In Kansas, they burn everything, and they burn it often. And then Nebraska, we have a year-round burn ban. Hmm. Um, I, I, I haven't figured that one out. I haven't dug into the history of it yet. So um, is fire good for soil? Uh, for the soils, it can do a couple things. Um, you know, we, we always, I always like to, to say we, it's not a magic bullet, so it doesn't make everything instantly better. Right. Um, so for in the soils, when we burn soil, we're going to kill some microbes. We're going to expose some soils to potential erosion. We're going to volatilize some nitrogen. We're going to send some carbon back to the atmosphere that was in there just because of the heat and the combustion process. Um, but we have to remember our, our native plants, especially, they, they evolved with a lot of fire. Right. right. Um, we, we have to take a step back and recognize that um, the fear of fire is very much a European construct. Uh, native Americans were using fire on this landscape and they were using it effectively for a long, long time. So that drove an evolution, a, a co-evolution between fire and our plants. They can handle it. So post-fire, we're going to see a, a flush of growth. We get some accelerated nutrient cycling from the ash and stuff that sits, that, that remains, that doesn't volatilize or blow away. Um, and, and once we get that, that flush of growth afterwards, then we start to protect those soils from raindrop impact. We start to cover things up again in a, in a fairly quick turnaround. Hmm. Um, so to say it's good for soil is maybe not quite 100% accurate, but is very much good for grassland settings um, and grassland systems. Um, and then, and we can tie fire to a lot of really um, cool mechanisms with animal distribution and moving animals around. So you don't want to build a fence, fine, just burn a corner of your pasture. And you know what? They're going to spend most of their time there because the grass that comes back is higher nutritive value, higher palatability, and that's where they're going to want to be. And they'll ignore all this other stuff. So it's kind of like oh, just nice. building a fence without doing it, you know? It's called patch burn grazing or uh, pyric herbivory, whatever you want to call it. Um, really cool stuff. Uh, like I said, I, from my perspective, from a teaching perspective, I just want to get students to, to have some experience yeah. with it. You know, until you actually watch fire move a lot across the landscape, you're not really going to fully grasp. But, you know, you can watch all the YouTube videos in the world, but until you watch it, you hear it, you get the smoke in your eyes. Um, right. It, it changes things. It changes your perspective. Um, so it's, it's still pretty cool. It's mm-hmm. fun to play with. I, it's and that's maybe a little bit cavalier to say, but um, I, I, it's an important tool that we have in our toolbox that um, students need to be at least familiar with. Yeah, yeah. that was interesting. Well, I wanted to. You kind of answered it a little bit already, but I wanted to add on that we have this living lab, like literally in our backyard on campus. But it sounds like the surrounding area has also got a lot of possibilities for learning. Are there uh, like regular places you got you take the students to to examine um, soils or, or whatever else? Soils is a tough one um, because the class is 
it's full. Right. You know, and then it's just, I can't shove 20 students in one van and drive them out there. We don't have the, so most of the soils we stay on campus. Um, with my hydrology class, we don't have a stream on campus, and most of the work we deal with is, is stream-based. Um, so we'll go to the state park. We use the state park a lot for that. That's go cool. out and use Shadron Creek that flows through there um, for stream flow measurement and uh, riparian area health assessment and things like that. It's... Um, it's a that resource with the state park close and having access to that's pretty great. Um, we also have you know the Forest Service around is a huge resource. We work really well with the Forest Service um, one because they hire a lot of our students, uh, and then two that they let us go out and and use their their space for things like rangeland health assessments or when we teach the Nebraska Range short range short course every other year we'll go out there and spend a lot of time on Forest Service property. Um, not a that's not something that other parts of nebraska have that kind of makes shattered pretty unique is having that uh forest service right basically in our back door right it's what an eighth of a mile or something yeah. like that over there so uh, awesome that's good now kind of moving away from the your academic pursuits and in your teaching career you're also uh involved on campus as the faculty senate president this year what's that commitment like and then how important is shared governance to a campus like Shattern State? Uh, so the commitment, you know, as a, as a faculty Senate member, it's a couple hours uh, a week reviewing documents and showing up for the meetings when we have them. Uh, moving into the leadership side of things, um, a little bit more intense, a couple extra meetings. Um, I got a little bit lucky when, when I stepped into the president's role. I just happened to have a 9 o'clock class, so I missed some 9 o'clock meetings. Um, made my life a little less chaotic. Um, but, but really the commitment from both Senate and, and from leadership in, in Senate is, is acting as kind of that, that intermediary between upper administration and, and faculty, um, trying to keep... Uh, faculty abreast of what's going on at the high levels, keeping the people that are on top um, aware of the concerns and, and what's going on with faculty to making sure that, you know, the things that we see in the classroom, the things that we see on campus works its way up to the people that mm-hmm. um, that make decisions. Because it really is, it's, it's an advising body. It's not a decision-making body. So we can't, uh, you know, rubber stamp something and, and so be it. It's, you know, this is a problem. We've recognized it as a problem. We've debated it. We know something has to happen. Here's our suggestions for what happens, and then it goes up the chain, um, and, and they can decide on, on ultimately how to make those decisions. And, and do you meet weekly? Uh, twice a month. Okay. So first and third Tuesday. And then what's the length of the, your term of office? Is it, is it one year, two years? Uh, I, I've been on Senate for three years. Um, President for one, okay. vice president for one. Um, so kind of vice presidency, learn what happens in the leadership role. And then as president, you kind of take over and you get to shape the agenda a little bit to say, you know, these are the things, you know, for example, I, I teach in essential studies. I have an interest, interest in the essential studies program. Maybe I'm going to push that to the top of my agenda. Um, or if you have other things that, that you're passionate about or you recognize as a problem as, as leadership, you get to get kind of set that a little bit. 
but then also you really have to, to be willing to listen to the faculty as a whole. Yeah. Some of that comes up through their Senate reps. Some of it comes from random emails in the middle of the night saying, you know, this is a problem. We need to bring this up. And, mm-hmm. and then it gets added to the agenda and sometimes debated repeatedly. Sometimes it's, it's brought to um, vice president levels and, and dealt with. But okay. So are you going to be involved with it next year? I'm going to say, him on the spot. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so we have some, some challenges in the range programs. So as a whole, can't the, the academic structure of campus is rearranged, right? We went through the reorg. We now have 18 departments. Before, um, the structure of Senate was based on schools, mm-hmm. and so each school had a certain number of reps. Now every department has to have a rep. So now we have 18 reps coming in. Um, that puts range in a little bit of a sticky situation because there's only going to be three of us unless we, because we have a retirement and we have three big committees that, that we have to fill. Uh, some of those require tenure and not all of our faculty are tenured. So um, I may find myself on something requiring tenure and, and not on Senate. I see. Uh, there, you know, and, and that's a challenge that the, the body will face probably perpetually because we, we tend to see some turnover at the institution. We have some programs that, you know, it, it ebbs and flows. Sometimes they're very high in tenured faculty. Sometimes it's a, a wave of new people. And then you, it's hard to get people onto some of these, these committees. Um, so, you know, during my time as president, we spent most of it just trying to hammer out the organizational structure that goes with the reorg and getting people into places where they can help advise administration. Well, good job. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to say I'm super bummed that, that my turn is <laughs> More fun to come. Uh, so we have a note here that you are an avid runner and you've entered some long races. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, the training process uh, and uh, what's next uh, on the racing agenda. <laughs> um, so I, I'll preface that. So I, when I started in 2013, one of the first people I met on campus was Ted Tiwahadi. And Ted was talking about doing all these long runs and half marathons and all this stuff. And um, I was coming into this position at about 220 pounds and said, that is a silly idea. Why would anyone want to run that far? Um, Times change in a decade. Uh, Picked up running. You know, maybe it was a COVID thing. I don't really know what spurred it. Um, But started started jogging. might have been the dog too. She needed exercised. Um, That's a good excuse. Yeah, yeah you know, but Get you dis- distances just kept getting a little bit farther and a little bit farther. Um, so last year, I ran at least one marathon a month outside of two months. Um, I missed two months because of injury. Uh, last June, I ran the Black Hills fifty-mile race. And that's what hobbled me up in July, so I didn't get my marathon done in July. But uh, I figure the 50 should count for That should count two. for two, yeah. yeah and then that's good. I ran 30 <laughs> miles like a week and a half before the 50 anyways. So that, that, I'll count June as three. And oh, so, yeah, I think so. You know, one, of, one of my favorites is to, just to um, get on the Cowboy Trail and go to Rushville. Um, that's a, a pretty good run. A few fences in the way, but. Yeah. And what's that, like 40 miles? 30. 30? Okay. So that, that's a good one. I'd make bad. it maybe three. <laughs> I could pace you on my bike. 
yeah, it's, you know. But you got to go before with fire to get some of those weeds out of there so I yeah. don't have a popped tire. Um, yeah. <laughs> maybe we need to get a little bit of bridge repair, too. So uh, we'll, we'll see. Um, but so, yeah, so I did the 50. Um, with the kind of the motivation just to see if I could do it and see if I can do hard things. You know, I'm 40 years old. Let's try a new challenge in life, right? Um, but I got done with it, and, you know, it took a little bit of reflection. But as I did that, it kind of, you know what, that really wasn't that hard. I actually generally believe almost anyone can run 50 miles. It's, you know, maybe not today. You know, it might take a, a few weeks to, to get you stretched out a little bit. Um, but, you know, that, that distance, I think, was fairly manageable. And so since I came to that conclusion, um, I sat around and I thought about it, did some Googling and looking at the, the race structure and stuff, and, and realized that if you run the 50 with the Black Hills and then you run the three other race distances, you get this really cool black buffalo skull that I've decided I must have in my office. Mm. Sounds like a must-have, really. It is. Yeah. You know, it's an obligation at this point. Um, and so to do that, that means I have to get the 100 done. So I'm signed up for the Black Hills 100 in June. So that'll be, that'll be a test. Um, 100 miles. What, how long do you get to finish? 36 hours is the total. Okay. I'm shooting for 24. I want to get it done in a day. So You got the pen and paper, figure out what the pace would be for that. About 12-minute miles. Average 12-minute miles. And it's, it's going so bad. through the Black Hills? Yeah. Run from Sturgis to Silver City and then turn around and do it all over again. <laughs> um, right, the, cool. What's the elevation? For that? The total elevation gain is 16,000 feet. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a fair amount. Yeah. yeah, it's, you know. But well, How do you train for something like that? You can't, it's not like you can run to Alliance and back. One no, step at a time. Yeah, yeah, good point. <laughs> uh, there, there's a, a little bit of a law of diminishing returns after 30 miles. So, you know, through the training and lead up to this, I'll have a couple 30-mile runs, but I won't, you know, practice out to 75 and just to see, yeah. you know, because it takes so much time for the body to recover after that much pounding, um, at least for me. Um, others, I'm sure, wouldn't even bother them, but... Um, so uh, I'll ramp up my miles. I went through a, about a 12-week block after Christmas, uh, really focusing on um, getting my feet to move a little bit faster. Can't say speed or even fast, just fast for me. Um, wrapped that up a couple weeks ago. I'm into a 12-week block that'll end with the Black Hills 100. Ramp up. I'm at about, you know, oh, today was 10 miles. Yesterday was 9. So ramp up through from about a 50 mile week into 110 mile week and then taper down to race day um it's it's really meditative at this point you know get out and run I yeah mean, when i'm if i'm not running i'm chasing children or doing my job and so this is i mean that's really the value in it for me is it's three sometimes four hours to process stuff yeah so yeah i think can see ab- that being helpful think about all the gotcha questions that'll show up on a podcast and things like that you know <laughs> well, yeah because yeah, we've had my, so many of those <laughs> my question is um um is is there a normal um a normal set of audio going through your headphones you know podcast music audiobook or just listening to your feet in nature just my feet i don't run with music okay um i tried that for a while and I tripped and fell a few times, so I figured it was probably the, I got you. Okay. 
Uh, it had nothing to do with that, but it, I blamed it on there. Um, <laughs> so I, you go full zen. Yeah, this is. Yeah, good yeah, for you. It's, cool. it's fun. I, I mean, obviously, it's fun for me, or I wouldn't do it. Yeah, you know, I, I do get a. I like to tell people I'm the. I'm a professional athlete because <laughs> um, I did get paid for a race. So, Perfect. Um, that, that counts. Yeah. So. It's my second career. I didn't claim it on my taxes, so hopefully the IRS isn't watching. So, <laughs> I don't uh, think they are. I think my, you're my okay. sister's an IRS agent, so you know she might. Well, percolate out. Yeah, familiarity breeds contempt. <laughs> so watch out. Yeah, she, she'll probably turn me in for not paying taxes on my my race winnings. Well, you have to let us know how you do in June if you're not in prison. For, for tax, tax evasion. evasion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that'll be a fun one. I'm I'm probably overconfident at this point because I haven't been hurt for a while. So I'm probably set, yeah. set, my, set myself up for injury. You know, the curse of the forecast. <laughs> yes, yeah. I, think, yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know if we've ever had a 100-mile competitor on here. So no, I think you might be the we'll first. We'll find out, yeah. Keep, keep us informed. We'll see. Yeah, if, but if you break our, if you break a leg, don't come yeah. looking for us. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get get my entry fee paid back. So. <laughs> Maybe it's a good thing he's not listening to the forecast uh, while he's out working. <laughs> yeah, It'll make him run too fast. So, well, Tony, we're at that point in uh, the the uh, the day where we have some quick hitting questions. So the first thing that comes to the top of your mind: Do you have a favorite book or author? Uh, I really enjoy Doug Peacock. As an author, uh, you know, he has a, a couple books, Grizzly Years, Walking It Off, a Vietnam Vet. Um, so he's dealing with PTSD before we knew PTSD was a thing. Um, and then his last book, Was Was It Worth It, was a really good read. Okay. So, um, nice. Well, I like how our next question is not, um, do you have tattoos, but just how many tattoos do you have? <laughs> I've lost count. <laughs> um, it's healing up from the last round and so it's a, a fair amount a fair amount so are we talking about building toward one massive design or a bunch of individual items um one fairly massive design uh, i start with uh at my wrist with oh, a no. the violet flower from say my daughter's name is violet um that started it all and then i got a whole bunch of range plants going up my my forearm and then my son's name is river so i now have a river that oh, wraps around my arm yeah. out of some hills and things like that and then um I had about one more session to completely paint my left arm and and then we'll see Am and that's I, where you put the the minimalist design of me and daniel's face on your arm right well so you know my my yeah. wife was giving me a little grief the other day um, because I have one for my daughter and one for my son, but she doesn't really fall within there. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to curse the marriage with a name or anything, but, uh, you know, I thought, we'll see if we can put like a happy little squirrel, a like Bob Ross a squirrel in there or something. Yeah, there you, you go. Got to keep Paula happy. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I suppose it's better that it's it's natural stuff like that, you know, connection to the family instead of like a great red dragon or something. So <laughs> good stuff. Yeah, that'll come later across the, you know. The whole back side. Yeah, the back. <laughs> Tony, how many states have you been to? Uh, I have no idea. Most of the 17 western states. Okay. Um, I think I can cross all of those off my list. Add Hawaii in there, so we'll say 18. Um Throw in a little bit in the south and in the east, so say a round number of 20. 
is probably about right without having to count. That's a good number. Yeah. Kind of forgot Kansas in there, so maybe 21. <laughs> You're there because they like fire. Yeah. <laughs> I was there because Texas and it was on the other side, and I had to get there. So. <laughs> Same with Oklahoma. It's yeah. so probably a normal thing for Kansas. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, what was the best advice that you received as a college student? Uh, <laughs> or was it was it something from Ron Whedon, and were there four-letter words involved? There were. Um, <laughs> you know, Dr. Whedon... So when I started, you know, and I think most freshmen still have a, a welcome seminar sort of thing, tips and tricks thing. Maybe they still do that. Maybe they don't. But the, the guy that talked to that us said, you have to treat it like a 40-hour week. Show up and work 40 hours, have your fun on the weekend. And he said, sit in the front row so faculty get to know who you are. Super. Freshman in college, I'm going to do that. So I sat in the front row of Dr. Wheaton's class. There were four letter words, um, but he said... If I tip over, my aspirin is right here. <laughs> and if you're going to sit in the front row of my class, it's your job to stick one under my tongue. Um, and so probably the best advice was don't sit in the front row of elderly <laughs> faculty's <laughs> classes. You'll get, you know, get put on their medical forms. Um, but I, I think really the, the idea of treating it like a 40-hour week, you know, it's your yeah. job. Yeah. And that's hard. I get it. College is expensive. Students have to have jobs. Um, but... You know, if you're taking 15 credit hours, we're expecting 45 hours a week from you. That's a, over a full-time job, you know, so it really should be kind of, you know, there's there's time to make money later. Yeah. You know, and then also you got to enjoy it. You should, you know, so much in, of, of what really was beneficial in college comes back to relationships and, and some of those that you can build in your teen, late teens and early 20s that, that'll stick around for potentially yeah. a lifetime. Yeah. No, good advice. All right. Last one. What is one word that comes to your mind when you think of Shatter State College? Perlinski? It's <laughs> an original answer. We haven't had that one. No, no. we haven't. We so, haven't. and I have to preface, my dad graduated from Shatter State College in the early 80s. Okay. I graduated from Shadron State College in 2001. My brother, my sister graduated from Shadron State College. All of our spouses graduated from Shadron State College. Some of them came back and got a second degree. So I think if we add it up, I think we're up to nine degrees from the institution. Oh, wow. So it really is. I mean, it's a family thing for me. Yeah. You know, it's um, the first time I was on campus was when my dad took a TI-80 calculator training out of high-rise, and the whole family got to live in high-rise for a week while he was there. (laughs) And I was, you know, 10 years old, but, um, so, you know, it's, it's a a pretty deep connection to my family, and so, yeah, it's, it's home, it's, it's an important institution for essentially what I am, so... Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, keep that tradition going. Yeah, for sure. I don't know if I can convince my kids to stay in town. That's a tough one. <laughs> you got some time to work on them. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Tony. Really appreciate you uh, no and, and, and joining us on the podcast. Yeah, it was fun. Thank so, you. You're welcome.